Amen, indeed. And let us pray again as we prepare to hear from the word of the Lord this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to come to your house. Thank you for working through Jesus so that we can come to you. And and thank you for working in us through your Holy Spirit so that we actually are here and now present with you. Lord, as we open up the Bible and we reflect on it today, we ask that you would speak to each one of us. Speak to us as a church body and help us to grow closer to you and speak to each one of us and help us to recognize more of who you are and so in our lives to reflect more of who who you are. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are starting a new sermon series today called, Who Do You Say I Am? And over the next six weeks, we're certainly not going to hit all of the verses or even quite all of the chapters of Mark 1 to 8, but we're going to track the big movement of the first half of this gospel. And then when we get to Lent and Easter next year in 2024, we're going to pick up the second half, <clears throat> excuse me, the second half of this gospel. And the key question that's going to guide us is is the question Jesus asked in this gospel, who do you say I am? Who do you as God's people say I am? Is the question Jesus asked his disciples and asks us over the coming weeks. So let's read. The words will be on the screen. We're going to read Mark 1, verse 1, and then Mark 1, 9 to 15. There are also Bibles in the benches that you were invited to open and keep open throughout the sermon to follow along. Hear now the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then on to verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. So during the time we spent in Nigeria, we worked with a, a couple at the Bible school I taught at called Hezron and Christie. And, and Hezron was one of my closest friends there, really good colleague, tremendously helpful in so many ways. And Christie had a wonderful heart, but she was one of those people who you never had to wonder what she was thinking. She would always, always, always say whatever was on her mind, which sometimes was a little awkward, but sometimes it was really helpful because there would be other things people would just shake their heads, and after we left, they'd say those crazy white people, and Christy would just write up and say, you people are crazy. This is what, what are you thinking? And there was one time in particular that, that I asked what I thought was a really pretty ordinary question. I wonder if you've ever had this in life, that, that you asked an ordinary question and people responded to you kind of, kind of strangely. And I asked Hezron and Christy, so how did the two of you meet? I mean, you're married now, you've been married for a few years. How'd you meet? And Hezron kind of rolled his eyes a little bit and then was going to tell me. And Christy just started laughing. She was like, why do all you white people, why do all you white people ask how we met? Nobody asked that in Nigeria. What, what kind of question is this? 
Well, it's kind of the usual question you ask married couples, right? And actually, then I said, well, okay, but anyway, tell me how you met. And it turned out that they met in kind of a unique way. You see, most Nigerian couples at that point were still, were still either the beneficiaries or victims of parental matchmaking. That one person's father would go out and talk to someone else's father in the village or the village over, and, and they would work the whole thing out even before you got to marriable age, and then you would get married based on what your fathers had arranged. That was how it worked, and I think that's part of why they didn't ask, because everybody knows how your father talked to his father. All, it all makes sense. But actually, in Hezron and Christie's story, they were the first in their families to go off to university. They were both the first to leave their village, and they went out to this big state university, and they met there, and, and actually, Hezron had to go and talk to Christie's father and get permission to marry her, and, and it was this whole big thing in their lives. So at the end of that, I said, so there's a good reason I asked that question, huh? But often when we're, in, when we're in a particular cultural stream or when we're in the flow of our lives, there are questions that we just don't ask, don't even think about. Maybe we assume they aren't important. Maybe we, maybe we assume we know all the answers, but it's good for us actually to ask the questions because sometimes there is much more going on than we recognize. And I think... As we step into this sermon series, this is a good time for us to really ask, to really ask, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We're going to have a whole series of questions this morning, but, but for this whole sermon series, I want us to be reflecting on who Jesus really is. And I would guess this morning, if we took a t- poll and everyone had to answer that all of us would have something different to say about who Jesus is. And, and we might give a lot of correct answers, but I think that none of us probably would have an absolutely perfect answer. And if you think you do, I want to talk to you because I want that answer. And you know, even if our theology is all right and perfect, I suspect that our lives as Christians do not reflect who Jesus is. And maybe that's another level that we need to reflect on as we, as we work through the story of Jesus' life here in the Gospel of Mark. Who... Who do we say Jesus is with our mouths? And who do we say Jesus is with our lives? And that is what Mark wants to show us. The first verse that we read, verse 1, is really a title. It's a title for the whole gospel. And so Mark, at the very beginning of the gospel, and this question, who is Jesus, I think is the key question of Mark's gospel. But at the very beginning, he gives us the answer. He gives it all away because he wants us as readers to know And so to be able to see things in the narrative that the people inside the story can't see. Jesus Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Mark tells us. And as we read from the Heidelberg Catechism earlier, Jesus means Savior, Christ means the Anointed One, the one who reveals God to us, the one who opens the way for us to be with the Lord, the one who rules and reigns over our lives. That's a pretty good answer to who Jesus is. But this whole book... And this whole sermon series is going to, going to help us wrestle through and, and ask, where are there gaps? Where are there things? Where are there places where we think we've got Jesus all figured out and it turns out that we're missing something? So let's, let's keep asking that question. Our second question for this morning, looking at verses 9 to 11, is going to be, who does God say Jesus is? Who does God say Jesus is? And we need to have some background here as we think about this, that, that of all the ancient peoples, of all the ancient peoples, I think you could argue that the Jewish people, 
God's people, the people that Jesus was born among, they were the only real monotheists. Most people in the ancient world were polytheists. They believed in in lots and lots and lots of gods, and they would fight, and there was always new gods you could add and subtract. And there were a few people who were, and this is probably kind of a new term, who were henotheists, and not God is a chicken. But, But henotheists believed that there was one big high God, but then there were all kinds of other gods and powers and And so really, yeah, there was one God, but you could serve all kinds of gods. And the God of the Old Testament, the Lord God, the Lord we continue to worship today, he spent centuries making it very, very clear to this people group, to this people group, there is only one God. And then we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We come to the Gospel of Mark, and coming out of that people group, coming out of the background of that religion, what do we see? We see God himself speaking, and we see God saying to Jesus, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And we see the spirit, the spirit of God, and what does that mean? Descending on this person. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the son of God, and this, this means he is somebody something different than what we have encountered. And it's, it's really significant that God has spent basically the whole Old Testament telling his people, there is only one God. But now we see God in three persons. This is something radically new and radically different. And Mark chooses to tell us this by saying not that the heavens are opened as if they could be shut again, but by saying the heavens are ripped open and will never be shut again. There is something entirely new happening here. And here's the the payoff for us today and as we look forward, is that if we want to know the truth, if we want to have meaning in our lives, if we want to really be connected to everything that is ultimate, what do we need to do? We need to look to the Son of God. There are all kinds of other things out there that will claim to be ultimate or that will claim to be important or that will claim your attention. But if you really want your life to be in tune with the universe, if you really want your life to have any kind of meaning at all, then what you need to do is look to Jesus. This sermon series and this ministry year actually overall will be an incredible success if at the end of this year, if at the end of this sermon series, if at the end of this sermon, we pay a little bit more attention to Jesus. That will be an incredible win. And part of this is paying attention not to the Jesus who's in our head, not to the Jesus who we all kind of make up, who looks an awful lot like us, to be honest with you, but to the Jesus who really is the Son of God, the Jesus who who reveals himself and reveals God to us so that we can know God truly, but who continually challenges the the little pictures of him that we make, the ways that we reduce him. Jesus is more than we think. So Jesus is the Son of God, and let's look to Him. And after, after the heavens are torn open and all of that happens, then there's these funny couple verses that, to be honest with you, I thought about not talking about this morning, because verses 12 and 13 are a little weird. So we have the heavens torn open, and, and God says, this is my Son! And what would you expect next if you didn't read for it, if you didn't know the story of the gospel? You probably would expect a celebration. You probably would expect a coronation. Let's make this guy king. He's the son of God. Wow. And instead what happens is the Holy Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness 
to be tempted by Satan and to be around the wild animals. What? Why is this here? Now let's go back to that story of Hezron and Christie for a moment. And remember I said they were, they were the first in their family to go to university. Tremendous privilege, tremendous sacrifice on the part of their families. They suffered so that these two could go to university. And the idea was they would get good government jobs with good salaries, and they would pay for all of their younger siblings to go to university. And then in their parents' old age, all of these wonderful government job, wage-earning kids would provide for them. And instead of going that route, Hezron and Christie move out to this tiny little Bible school in the middle of nowhere where their salary gets paid eventually most of the time and it's not much of a salary. And yet, there they are. And I I don't know that they're there anymore. The last year or two has been pretty rough, but up to that point, they had been there and they were there for, for at least 15 years of really grinding it out in a remote, isolated, difficult poverty-stricken place. If you look at the story, how it should have gone, wealth, advancement, prestige, position, and you look at the story, how it went, it doesn't make any sense. And here, if we look at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, and and we, we let ourselves be a little bit unfamiliar with the text, the story doesn't go how it should go. How the story should go when the Son of God appears is that he becomes, well, he becomes king, or at least he gets lots of, of royal gifts, and people worship him and pay attention to him, and, and the crowd should gather, and instead, the first thing that happens is that he goes out into the wilderness and has to battle the evil powers of the world. And what's the message here? What's the message for us? And actually, people have a really hard time agreeing on on what the message, or at least how we get to the end of the message is. There was, there was a time when we were on vacation the last few weeks that we were climbing a mountain, Long Scraggy Camp, I've talked about a couple times, and we were almost at the top of the mountain. The ridge was probably, oh, from here to, to maybe the ceiling and church here. But there was no obvious way to get up there. There were a lot of great ways. You kind of go this way, and there was a nice tree, and there was some nice, you know, nice woods and rocks. Or you could go this way, and it was a little steeper, but it was more direct. You could kind of circle around, take a really gradual path. But not a whole lot of people walked this path, so there legitimately was no indication of which path we should take. We knew what the top was, but we weren't quite sure how to get there. And that's kind of what's going on with this wilderness bit, and part of the reason why I thought about not talking about it, because there is a lot of disagreement about what exactly is going on. So I'm going to give you a quick, like, five options, and then I'm going to tell you what it looks like when we get to the summit and we see the point the text is trying to make. So some people think the point here is Jesus is God. This is another way of reinforcing that, that when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, Satan and the wild animals interact with him, and the angels, too, in ways that we only see them interact with God in the Old Testament. I don't think that quite works grammatically, but okay, Jesus is truly God. That's a good point. Other people say this is Jesus being the better second Adam. We're back in paradise. We're back in the Garden of Eden, and there is this man there, and the wild animals are around him, and Satan comes to try to undo it all. So we're back, we're back at the beginning. We're hitting the reset button, and Jesus is Adam. Some other people say Jesus is Israel. 
like Israel had to wander in the wilderness before they got to the promised land and, and their Old Testament version of salvation. Well, well, Jesus has to go, and he is Israel reduced to one. He is a representative of God's people who wanders in the wilderness before he really enters the promised land and can show the salvation God intends to provide. And some people say Jesus is the new Job. And Job is the story of a man in the Old Testament who Satan was allowed to afflict beyond all reason, beyond all justice, in order to turn Job away from the Lord. And here we see the beginning of Jesus' suffering, and we see Jesus as the innocent one, the innocent man who Satan torments beyond all reason. And you know, I think those are all true. I think those are all great paths to the summit. But I think the key point and the vision we need to see here is that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus, God himself, comes down to us and he goes through the wilderness for us. And he does it in part so that we don't have to. We don't go through anything like the wilderness that Jesus went through. This may not be true, but I I strongly suspect that none of us register enough on the spiritual radar that we will ever get Satan's personal attention. I highly doubt that. But Jesus had the undivided attention of all the forces of evil in this time in the wilderness. And this is just the beginning of his ministry. Jesus went through while literally hellish agony that we cannot even begin to understand, and he did it for us so that we would not have to. So no matter what suffering you experience in your life, you can be sure that Jesus Jesus experienced more so that you wouldn't have to. And then in the suffering we do experience, this text shows us that Jesus walks with us. He is not some distant savior. He is not some distant king. He is the king overall, but he is also our companion on the journey. He is also the one who delivers us. And sometimes he delivers us from our troubles, but but sometimes he is simply the presence, the person that helps us get through our troubles. And so when we look at Jesus, we see the Son of God, the center of reality, the one who we need to trust for everything. And we also see the one who we can trust for everything. And there is a level there, too, where, where I think we should glean that the Christian life is not about prestige and popularity. If you think that the Christian life is a life that you should sign up for so that you can have the nicest cars and the biggest bank account and and the coolest house, well, you're on the wrong track. That is not where Jesus went, and that is not what he promises us. He does not promise us easy lives. But what Jesus does promise us, what Jesus does promise us is his presence and his power forever. And that that is reason to follow him everywhere. Now, this week, I thought of a few stories I wanted to tell of, of times where one person really helped another person out, but, but most of the stories that I know of that are kind of confidential or kind of private and belong, belong to a particular person, a particular set of circumstances. But I want to ask you to reflect, do you know in your life or your family, somebody who really stepped up to the plate? Do you know somebody who really took a hit for you? That time, you really messed up at work, and your job was probably finished, and And your supervisor stepped in and said, no, 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 I'm the one who messed up. Blame me. And their career took the hit so yours wouldn't. Or do you know somebody when you were at the end of the rope financially, and they didn't have enough money either, but they they made that mortgage payment for you. 
or they made that car payment, or, or somehow the money showed up to pay that health bill that you couldn't pay. Or do you know somebody, when you'd broken a relationship, that they took it on themselves to, to pay the relational bill to restore that so that you could get back to where you were before? Jesus has done all of that for us and more. He is the one who has broken for us. And, and when you really get that, when you really understand that your life is fundamentally different because that person took the hit for you, you never forget that. And you live differently. And that's what brought Hezron and Christie out into the wilderness to serve the Lord there because, because God had transformed their lives and because they wanted to see Jesus represented there. That is, when we look to Jesus, what we see. Somebody who's gone into the wilderness for us. Someone who took the hit for us. Someone who, someone who delivered us from the trouble that we so richly deserved. So our last question for today. And one I, I hope you're willing to reflect on this week and in the coming weeks. Who do we say Jesus is? Who do we say Jesus is? So Jesus gets baptized. He goes out in the wilderness. We think there's some time that elapses, and then John is arrested, put in prison, and Jesus begins his public ministry, and he begins by saying, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And I want to ask all of us to reflect on whether we are really acknowledging Jesus as Lord and whether we are really repenting and believing the good news. Who do we say Jesus is? Who do we, when we talk about Jesus, what, what do we say about him? And does what we say about him match what the Bible says about him? And if you feel like you're good on that, then I want to ask you to reflect on your life. And again, to ask, does my life reflect who Jesus is? Am I living up to the type of person that Jesus is and the type of person he calls and makes us to be? And how we live, are we reflecting Jesus? So Jesus calls us to repent and believe, and I want to call all of us to repent and believe this morning too. And we're going to focus a little more attention on that first word because repent, repent, repent. It's a bad word these days, right? It's not four letters long, but nobody wants to hear they have to repent. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. And one of those is that honestly, we have a pretty shallow view of sin. Now, I'm talking just, just to you now, nobody else in the congregation, just to you. You and I both know that we don't need to repent, don't we? Because we're not sinful. No, 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 we're not. I'm joking, of course. Because you are sinful, and I am too. And so is everybody out there, but we don't want to admit it. We have this, this I think, often cultural and personal lack of, of real sense of guilt. We feel like everything is fine. Why, why is God so worked up about all this stuff? We don't feel like we need to repent because we don't feel like we've done anything wrong. And you know, by God's grace, none of us are as bad as we could be. But the truth is, none of us are as good as we could be either. And I think you see that these days, that maybe we don't, we don't sign on to some of the traditional sins as bringing us guilt, but, but people need to feel guilty. They need to feel like there is something wrong in the world. And so there are, there are all these things that we are raising to ultimate status and beating each other up about because we're wrong. We have too shallow a view of sin, and I think it's actually hurting instead of helping us. So maybe there's some sin in your life that comes to your mind or some place where you'd say, wow, that's really, at least really broken or really not how I want it to be or not how it should be. 
and maybe not. But I think too often we evidence, even in the church, too shallow a view of sin. But then let's, let's admit that we have too shallow a view of repentance, too. Because often, often the church's message of repentance has been, you repent, but I'm fine. You are wrong, and I'm right. You repent and become more like me. And even if that isn't our posture, too often we've been too close to that. And too often people who are not Christians or maybe, maybe not quite as committed as we are have heard a call to repentance as a call not to become more like Jesus, but to become more like us. And you know, faith is a wonderful church. You are wonderful people. It is good to be together. It's a wonderful community. But we ain't perfect people. And we should not be calling others to become Christians so they look or act more like us. We should be calling others to follow Jesus so they can look more like him. And it's only when we can turn the flashlight away from others and turn it on ourselves and admit our own sin, admit our, admit our own need for repentance, that I think we really can gain a hearing with other people. And, and the truth of the matter is that we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus, and Jesus is here for all of us. So I want to invite you, even if you have been a Christian for all your life, even if you were in a wonderful place with Jesus, I want to, I want to ask you to consider how you might need to repent. And repent it literally means to turn. And it's maybe not so much about one specific action, but maybe there's some things you can ask about, about the direction or the orientation of your life. And are you, are you really focusing in on Jesus? Or are you kind of playing the Jesus game and then you're really paying attention to your career, or your family, or whatever else? I want to invite you to, to follow the compass to, to Jesus, the true north. To turn your life, to turn your life to really believe in Jesus wholeheartedly with all you say and all you do. And I know that none of us is there perfectly, and at different stages of life we waver in different ways. That's part of life. But can we get ourselves a little more calibrated to Jesus? You know, a lot of us, a lot of us have all follow Jesus in everything except, or I will follow Jesus unless. And maybe if there's nothing else you can think of, you could ask, what's your unless or your except? Unless I have to give up my job, move into the wilderness, give up my best friend, give up my family, give up my life. What's your unless? What is your unless that might keep you from repenting and truly believing in Jesus as the Lord of your life? What's your unless? And I hope, I don't like saying this or being at this point, but I do hope that you find that a little bit unsettling. Because we all should. Because we all get distracted and we all have the compass of our life point a little bit or a lot away from Jesus. So I hope you're unsettled, but I hope you don't stay there. I hope you are unsettled so that you can become more settled on Jesus. Because the thing is that all the jobs and all the family members and all the everything and even our very lives will pass away. They will come and they will go. But Jesus stays true to us forever. And so I want, I want to invite you today into deeper life with Jesus. 
there is this reality of repentance that we have to turn away from all kinds of things. And, and I don't know what you might need to turn away from. You don't know what I might need to turn away from. But, but we all have things we could turn away from and turn more toward Jesus. And you will find deeper and better life in Christ. You will. You will find somebody who took the ultimate hit for you and who, who gave up his own life for yours. And so I want to invite you into a place where where you'll go wherever God calls, where you really will follow the Jesus who is who he is and not the Jesus of our own invention or our own preferences. Who do we say Jesus is? Well, let's say that Jesus is our Lord, our Savior, the one who delivers us, the one who reveals God to us, the one who walks with us through our wilderness. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, we pray, as dangerous as it is, we pray that you unsettle us. And Lord, if we have never truly committed to you, then we ask that you would push us to that. And Lord, if we have committed to you, but we have wandered or even we have just stopped paying attention for a little bit, help us again to see Jesus. Give us another picture of your son come to present you to us and come to bring us to you. And Lord, help us to see reality as it is and to recognize all the other good gifts you give us, yes, and, and all the sins that we've invested in, yes, and to be able to look at all those things and see how the best thing for us is to turn to you. Lord, give us the courage, give us the grace, give us the discernment, give us the energy and the power we need to look to you and to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.